Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, you will need to press star zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much today, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Clinical Trials, How They Transform the Treatment of Cancer. Very important topic. It's a topic that we um, address in part a little bit in each of our cancer-specific programs that we do, updates, but this program is really totally dedicated to addressing clinical trials and everything you need to know about them. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have many of you on the call today, which is a great interest to us because of the, your interest in clinical trials. We have over 210 participants today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Lithuania, the Philippines, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And we're delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to really focus on clinical trials. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I just have a few questions to ask all of you um, who are live streaming the call today. And so those of you who are live streaming will be able to see the questions and you'll also be able to hear me, um, um, you'll be able to see the questions as I read the questions. So I'm gonna start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand clinical trials why they are important, and where to access resources about clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the types of clinical trials and what happens in a clinical trial. One is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the meaning of informed consent and the benefits and risks of participating in a clinical trial in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions to go. I understand how and where clinical trials are conducted and how to participate in clinical trials. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand what questions to ask my healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I wanna thank everyone for participating in these questions. Your participation really helps us to, to better uh, create programs that best meet your needs. So it helps us to know what you know about clinical trials before the program starts. It's very helpful to us. So thank you very much. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing an overview of clinical trials and why they are important in the context of COVID-19 and its variants understanding your treatment options, including clinical trials, concerns about participating in clinical trials, types of clinical trials, the meaning of informed consent, and benefits and risks of participating of participation in the context of COVID-19. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's my pleasure and an honor to be able to spend time with you this morning speaking about the clinical trials. Um, I, I guess you cannot uh, minimize the importance of clinical trials in oncology. So much of what we know about what to do, how to do it, what to look out for, the benefits, 
the downsides of cancer therapy comes from clinical trials. So what is a trial? I mean, in the simplest terms, it is a mechanism, a way of being able to uh, use new therapies, new strategies, new drugs, new approaches uh, where we deviate from the understood uh, standard of care. Uh, and it's an effort to bring the best that we know and to improve what we know to our patients with cancer, to move the field forward. So there are, uh, Dr. Fleischman, who follows me, will speak more in detail about uh, some of these matters. But in general, clinical trials can be uh, therapeutic trials in which we are trying to use new medicines. They can be uh, uh, informational or registrational uh, reg registry-type trials in which we're gathering information about people. They can be uh, trials in which we're uh, 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 doing interventions such as uh, psychosocial interventions. Uh, they can be interventions like dietary. And, and just to, to listen to this tells you that trials are not all about medicines, but, but span the entire breadth of what we do in oncology. So very important. I tell my patients as we enter clinical trial uh, discussions that, uh, that everything we've done up to this point we know how to do and what to do through clinical trials, and that's super important. There are situations in which we are uh, looking at clinical trials. We talk about phases of trials, you know, and we have things like phase one, phase two, phase three, and what does that mean? Again, Dr. Fleischman will also spend some uh, detailed time on this, but in general, phase one is a, a, a sort of the first attempt uh, or first use of a new strategy or new medicine in patients. Uh, uh, with, uh, uh, um, with cancer, and it can span across multiple different cancer types depending on the trial. Uh, phase two is where we use it in a specific situation. We're using it, for instance, for example, in skin cancer, for example, in GI cancer, so on and so forth. And phase three is where there's enough evidence to mount a trial in which we are uh, taking uh, patients and offering them either the standard of care, which is what we're doing now, versus this new intervention. So that's a phase three trial. These are classic definitions, and what's important is that we are now uh, in attempts to make sure that we uh, move quickly through these phases and also that patients can benefit, as well as that we sometimes, if we identify that something's working, we'll jump from phase one to phase three. Sometimes we'll have what's called an expanded phase one. So what I've told you is a classic definition and one which is flexible to meet the, the needs of our patients. So the, the thing that's very important about clinical trials is that some people have concerns about it. They say, well, you know, I, I don't want to be in a placebo trial, right? I, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Uh, I want to just start by saying the most important message I should leave with you when, uh, uh, is that if you are someone who's looking at participating in a clinical trial, I want you to listen carefully, you are the boss. The patient actually has total control over the, uh, what the, uh, what's happening to them. And this is why we have things like informed consent. This is why we have processes in which uh, uh, at any time you, the, per the person in the trial, can ask for further explanation, can reach out to people doing the trial, can ask for the trial to, to, to stop if, uh, if for whatever reason you decide that this is not for you. So that's very important. Right? So uh, uh, people talk about things like placebo. That's a very uncommon to have placebo trials. Uh, but the reason why they're there in the first place is because sometimes one of the things we do is, is that we are just observing or, or not intervening in any specific way for that specific situation and that we're testing an approach in which we are going to intervene. And in that particular case, there might be a placebo involved. But the important thing is that uh, patients are always uh, uh, going to get the standard of care in those, in, in those situations. And, uh, and, there's, and there's always a careful monitoring of what happens. And this falls under, under the category of what, what are the benefits of being on a trial? Well, it's a mechanism for us as oncologists, as treating physicians, as people looking after people with disease, to, to offer uh, to you, the patient, uh, the opportunity to, to be treated with new strategies, new drugs, uh, and new ways of doing things. We in oncology do not just willy-nilly open up a, a, a new medicine and say, you know, try this. Let's hope it works. 
it may or may not benefit you, but more importantly, uh, you do not have the benefit of, the, of things like being part of a larger study. Why that's important is because all the investigators on a study share information. So uh, uh, things that are happening in the trial are passed on to all the investigators. So we see something that's novel, that's helpful, that gets passed on immediately to all the investigators and that impacts you immediately. Likewise, if we see some uh, uh, odd toxicity or odd side effects that we've never seen before, that too gets passed on through the system. And so you also have the benefit of, of being plugged into a system which we're watching for such things carefully. Number two is the fact that even if you're on the standard of care arm of a clinical trial, you have uh, a set schedule, a set uh, uh, um, uh, workflow in which uh, people are coming in on a regular basis. We have standardized testing, so everyone's getting tested the same way, and scheduled uh, restaging, imaging, and scans, and so on and so forth. We're looking carefully for any side effects, but more importantly, uh, and uh, also carefully for any benefit uh, that's happening to you, whether you are on the study trial or not. There are multiple studies in which we have examined uh, the outcome of people who are on trials, and uh, it's quite clear that even the control arm, the arm that's, that's not getting the intervention but getting standard of care, they tend to do much better than those who are not on a trial. And the reason for that is the close attention you have between yourself and the medical team. So <clears throat> that's a very important part of, of, of being on trial. It is a foundation of everything we do. Now, one of the things that uh, people always ask me is that what happens uh, if I'm on a trial, what happens if, uh, if something's going on and, and I'm, I'm not comfortable? The important thing is that before any patient comes onto a trial, there's a process called informed consent. And what does that mean? Is that it is uh, a way of doing things in which the person on the trial uh, understands what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it, what's in it for them, what are the potential things that, that can go wrong, and also importantly, uh, the, the full contact information of how to get hold of people, very important. What I t do oftentimes in my own practice is that if, when we're talking about a trial, I will give the patient a consent form if they're interested in this trial. And I say, listen, take it home, read it, and we can, you can follow up either telephonically or at a repeat visit. Uh, I prefer the latter because it enables us to have a great conversation. And, and come back with questions if, you know, and, and any concerns. That's very important. And so you know what's gonna happen and most patients will have a schedule of events. In other words, you know when your next treatment is, you know who you, uh, uh, when your appointment is, you know what kind of tests are being done. It's on a calendar oftentimes in these therapeutic trials, right? So, uh, and on top of that, you know when your scans are and you have access to the study team, the people doing the trials, uh, the team that's around, that surrounds a trial, surrounds you, and uh, you should, and that's part of the informed consent process as well, because it's actually in the document that we give you, uh, you have the full contact information. So if there are concerns that arise during this process, and no matter what kind of trial you're on, you have the ability to reach out to your team. Importantly, remember, remember who's the boss. You're the boss, right? So. One of the things that was mentioned in the introduction is how does this change in, during COVID? I think it's even more important. And the reason for that is because uh, one of the things we have seen uh, during COVID is a drop off in clinical trial accrual as travel and uh, uh, sort of becomes to a standstill as patients will go back and forth, as we segue to a virtual type visit, it's not the same sort of interaction and one of the things that sort of fell by the wayside is this whole idea of being able to access clinical trials. And again, Dr. Fleischman was to speak to you about that uh, specifically. It is important that, uh, that this whole process of, of being part of a clinical trial is not forgotten during the COVID process. And what we have done in institutions like ourselves, we've moved to a, a virtual environment. We can now uh, have people sign documents virtually. We, we try to minimize the back and forth travel uh, as part of the uh, necessary to get on the trial. And on top of that, uh, we are watching closely for any interaction with COVID. What do I mean by that? Because it's a, COVID is a new thing that's happening to all of us with so many unknowns, 
uh, being part of a trial also allows you to access the, uh, the databases uh, that we're keeping uh, to watch for any uh, adverse interactions, to watch for new things happening uh, in this time of COVID. So that's an opportunity if you're on a trial to also be part of the larger picture to contribute to the overall information that's happening with that because we're collecting in all our patients, but also you have access to information should new things come up, right? So sometimes patients ask, well, what about this and COVID? And oftentimes you know, we don't have definitive answers, but I can tell them that, you know, by looking at what we're sharing amongst all the investigators, that that seems not to be an issue at the time. So you have access to all those things going on uh, in the trial. So I'm going to sort of finish by, by sort of uh, uh, emphasizing the importance of trials. And the, the message I really want to impart upon you is to empower you as a patient that you are indeed the boss, right? And so uh, your ability to participate in a trial is uh, um, um, a, a important to access uh, new drugs, new strategies, uh, new ways of doing things in oncology. And remember, before any trial gets to the point where, where patients are looking at it to, to participate in, it goes through a vigorous in-house process. It has to pass scientific review. It passes ethics review. There's a biosafety part to it as well. And these oftentimes can take quite a number of months before it even gets to you. So these are all things that happen before it gets to the, to the patient. And the important thing here is that is that it is an opportunity to uh, offer uh, what we believe is the next best thing to patients uh, with cancer. And, and, the, and again, I'm going to end by the, the, the question, who's the boss? It's you, the patient. So I'll end here and be happy to take questions and pass the baton on to Dr. Fleischman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Wong. That was really um, a stellar presentation. Just outstanding and actually really set the stage for today's program and um, uh, such so many important points but presented in a way that I think is quite understandable to people listening in who really are um, really wanting to know more about clinical trials so thank you and I know the questions to you during the Q&A and our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman Dr. Fleischman is former founding director of Cancer Support Services Continuum Cancer Centers of New York an author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing how and where clinical trials are conducted, what happens in a clinical trial, how to participate in a clinical trial, in clinical trials, specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19 experience, guidelines preparing for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, and open notes discussion, and accessing resources for clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And I have a lot uh, to cover in a short amount of time, so uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that. So Dr. Wong is correct. You're in charge when you're on a clinical trial, and that's a really important concept. So uh, I've been working in clinical trials for over 30 years, and uh, many patients will ask, well, why would I do this? And there are very important reasons, as sometimes it's either access to a new treatment that is on the way to approval, but isn't quite uh, through all the uh, bureaucratic hurdles. Uh, maybe sometimes new, new data is needed. Sometimes um, it's, a, it's a, an established treatment uh, that's given on a schedule that's thought to be better, or a dose that's thought to be better, or the dose isn't yet established. Or sometimes um, it's because there's a treatment out there that's thought to be the better treatment than what is available through the usual care. So there are a lot of reasons to go on clinical trials. In addition, you're helping uh, both the field and other patients that come after you. And, and many people really do think about doing clinical trials on that basis alone, which is quite rewarding that we're helping each other out. So clinical trials are conducted in a number of different settings. It could be in a large all-cancer research hospital. It may be in a, um, a, 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 an, an approved or accredited cancer program inside a 
a regular medical surgical hospital that has all the other specialties that don't only focus on cancer, but their cancer center is accredited as a specialty program. It may be in a community hospital. It may be even in um, your community oncologist's office. One of the things that we've learned doing clinical trials is that there are many patients who aren't treated in the larger centers. And through uh, efforts by some of the clinical trials groups, these are groups of oncologists and oncologist offices that get together to run clinical trials locally uh, where uh, they have the facilities in their office to do so. We get a wider variety of people. And um, with rare exception, the greater diversity of a population that comes into the cl a clinical trial, the more valuable it is um, scientifically. So you don't necessarily have to travel to um, a large center. Many of these trials are available locally, um, right in your community, or you can be referred. Um, th th that's another point. That a clinical trial is thought to be helpful to you, especially if you're being treated in one of the larger centers and an accredited program. The staff there is supposed to hunt around to see if there's a clinical trial that you are eligible for. That's quite easy these days because there are no secret trials. All the trials are published in online databases that are available to your oncology providers as well as the public. Um, you can sign on uh, to clinicaltrials.gov and uh, read the uh, trials that are open. Uh, most of the time, they're coordinated by one cancer center, but have um, uh, cancer centers and, and oncology offices all over the country that also conduct the same trial. Um, if you try to do that, you need, really need to have someone who knows a lot about oncology to help you sift through it because there's a lot of lingo, a lot of very technical things, and it is hard for most people, even other medical and nursing professionals who aren't familiar with oncology, to be able to go through these lists. But there's help out there through the American Cancer Society, Cancer Care, or the National Cancer Institute. They either have folks who can help you understand this or connect you to the people who can. So looking at this information, although it's open information and available to the public, is somewhat hard without an oncology background. So let's say you are eligible for a trial, whether your treatment team finds it or you find it, be prepared that on the visit where this is um, discussed and you may enter it, you need, you'll need to be in the doctor's office or in the cancer center for a long time. Uh, as Dr. Wang explained, informed consent um, is really inherent, is really main part of the process of clinical trials. And there's a lot of paperwork, unfortunately. But fortunately, because if you're not expected to absorb all this information right away, often patients will be advised that they're eligible for a clinical trial or they should go into one. They're given a lot of paperwork to take home. Some of it technical and some of it is in regular everyday English so people can understand um, some of the technical parts of the um, medical jargon, um, and, and certain centers will have them available in other languages as well. But when you go back to that next visit where the informed consent takes place, be prepared to stay for a while because there are a lot of details, lots of explanations uh, about exactly what you need to do. Um, is, is there, are there going to be extra visits? These days in COVID times, will those be in-person visits or will some of them be on telehealth, on the telephone or on a video platform? Um, is there extra testing done? Um, you will be assured that any testing that's outside of the usual standard of care, the usual way your cancer is treated, um, would be paid by the sponsor of the trial and not you and not your insurance. There may be some extra costs that are incurred. Um, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, those costs are reimbursed to you. You're not paid to be in the trial, but if you have to come in for extra visits and there's extra transportation involved, uh, many times there um, is money to pay for that transportation. Uh, patients often like to be in clinical trials, as Dr. Wong mentioned, because you do get a lot of extra attention. <laughs> um, and that's really helpful going through um, cancer treatment, be it uh, during chemotherapy or even during radiation therapy um, or after surgery. The extra 
uh, attention from the staff often means you learn more and um, people can really uh, check how you're progressing even more than they usually will. And that's the opposite of what people think. Most um, most people think that they're kind of left to their own devices, but it's just the reverse, that there's extra help available to you. So who participates in clinical trials? Well, many people. Um, and um, the access to treatments that are not yet available to you and helping out society in general are, are usually the most important reasons that people um, that people give and it's extremely helpful to be able to help others out in addition to helping yourself get better. Um, the, there are visits that often need to be on a certain day. That becomes a little bit more difficult in COVID times. Sometimes there's a little, little more wiggle room in some trials than others, but that has to be spelled out and that you should ask questions about that. Um, if you're thinking of going into a trial or advised to go into a trial, and that's part of the informed consent process. Um, as in just a regular, regular care now, some of the visits may be on telehealth. Uh, it may be that you're able to call in. It may be that if you have a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or, or a desk computer that has a camera and a microphone and speakers, that you'd actually have a video visit to check on things. Um, it really depends upon the nature of the trial and how far away you live. And if there are certain parts of the monitoring that can be done remotely or they need to be hands-on, and that will vary from trial to trial. And the challenges with telehealth in a trial are similar to what we have in everyday practice. Um, if you're going to have a telehealth visit, make sure that you have a device that's charged, if it's your telephone, even if it's just a plain old landline cordless phone, it needs to be charged so you don't run out of um, battery power during the call. If it's going to be in a cell phone or a tablet or a, a laptop, make sure that's charged as well. Have a quiet place. Make sure that the day, at least the day before, somebody from the um, provider's office uh, is in touch with you and you know, are you supposed to call into them? Are they going to call you? Will it be on the phone? Will it be on the, um, on the electronic platform, uh, the system that they have um, to conduct video visits? Um, in addition, you have the opportunity to think about all your questions in advance, have your family actually help you uh, formulate those questions. One of the unusual benefits of these COVID times is that people can actually join you who don't live in your city uh, or state or country as long as they have access to an internet line and you authorize for them to come on. They can actually participate in your care if you want them to, and that's an unusual thing that none of us anticipated before COVID. Um, in, in addition to having access to uh, some of the visits, either on, on the regular telephone, through voice, or on a video platform, some uh, of the larger hospital systems and some of the doctor's offices who have um, treatment privileges at uh, the larger hospital systems will have lots of information about you, a part of your chart, including personal information, results of your scans, results of your lab tests, um, and um, a summary of the notes of your visits all online. That is <clears throat> highly protected through uh, encryption and privacy, but you often can access that at home to review some of the information, especially the test results um, that that are are uh, placed on these um, on, on these large systems. Please, please be careful when you read them. You may get them even before the provider's office does. There may be something that is supposed to be abnormal because that's expected during treatment, like your white blood cell count may go down a little or your red blood cell count may go down a little, hemoglobin, hematocrit. There are many, many things that are supposed to be out of the normal range, yet people who aren't really uh, trained in oncology worry that if something is abnormal that they're sicker than they are and they're not being given the right information. So you really need to have someone who's not only um, uh, familiar with the medical nursing issues, but, but particularly oncology issues to be able to answer your questions. 
same thing goes for scan reports, very hard to understand in context of cancer, especially during treatment when things change, hopefully for the better. So when you read things on in, in, in these open notes, um, and, and if it's, even if it's a summary of the uh, visit that you have, Many of our patients don't understand that when we sit down to compose those notes after a visit, we don't just type. Uh, there are a lot of things in drop-down menus where we have a choice of things to pick, and many of those things are medical jargon and can be easily misunderstood. So a few months ago, a patient saw an, a part of the notes uh, with, the, um, with the abbreviation SOB, and they thought that was a not nice thing to call somebody, but it actually turned out it was shortness of breath. <laughs> Those kinds of misunderstandings are somewhat easy. So please, um, if you're reading these um, reports before you have access to your providers, don't draw any conclusions. Um, each provider's office should have someone to go over it with you. It may be the oncologist, him or herself. It may be a physician's assistant. Uh, it may be an advanced practice nurse or nurse practitioner um, or, or even a medical information specialist, but someone in the practice or someone at the cancer center who's actually trained to read these reports and answer your questions and to find out if there's something that they don't know. So um, I, I think I, I completed the list that Dr. Messner gave me for the topics that need to be addressed. Obviously, there are, can be many, many questions about this topic. It can get awfully complicated. We're, our goal is to make it as simple as possible, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. Also outstanding and stellar presentation, and and covering a lot of issues that I know you'll have questions about during the Q&A, and the questions are coming in already from people who've been on the program before. And so thank you very much. Thanks. I really appreciate your presentation. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about um, the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, there are many national organizations, cancer organizations out there. Um, and indeed, after today's program, you'll all be receiving a SurveyMonkey, which is an evaluation of the program. But in that evaluation, we'll also include any um, links or anything that was mentioned um, in terms of, uh, you know, getting information about cancer clinical trials. We'll send you all those links and, and as, as well as other organizations. But Cancer Care um, is primarily staffed by oncology social workers. We have close to 40 oncology social workers on staff. And um, many people in the United States call our Hope Line, which is an 800 number. And for people internationally on the call, you can visit our website and um, our staff post your question and our staff will respond to your question, our oncology social workers will. And there are resources in your own communities as well or um, globally that will be able to assist you. So please also feel free that you can contact us as well. Um, so when a person calls our Hope Line, usually they have a specific question or concern, or when they visit our website, they have a particular question or concern. And our oncology social work staff will address that concern or question, and then we'll go over with them all of the services we offer. So I'm just to give you a thumbnail sketch of all the services we do offer. So we do offer support, a chance to talk to someone who's specially trained to listen and to be a help to you. And we also um, offer online support groups and those groups um, do not occur in real time as today's program is, but they actually occur um, there. You can post your comments any time of the day or night. Um, so people really like that. And the online support groups are actually, first of all, for different types of cancers and also for different uh, topics, like for older adults, younger adults, um, partners, um, family members, um, and um, they cover a range of topics. So basically, and there are lots of them, and you actually, if you go to our website, you'll be able to see a listing of all of those groups and decide if it's something that you would be interested in, in participating in. Now, we also offer practical financial assistance and co-payment assistance. And so what is that? A lot of people, particularly, well, Cancer Care is about 78 years old as an organization, and we have, since our inception, offered practical and financial assistance. Um, and and co-payment assistance has developed over time. And these are significant grants that we give to people 
well, first of all, we help people with practical solutions to their problems. Sometimes you may not know a resource that's right in your hometown or in your region um, or that we can provide. Um, but we also offer financial assistance and case management um, and, and actually uh, co-payment assistance. And those are fairly large grants that can assist you with the costs of your treatment and things like that. So these are wonderful resources for you to access. Um, and again, we're not the only organization that offers these services, so just you're aware of that. And it is okay to go to multiple places to get support um, with what you need. Um, uh, we also offer these educational workshops, and we also have a number of publications. We also have something called a pet assistance program. For those of you who have a cat or a dog, and let's say you're just not feeling up to taking your dog for a walk, or you're able, not able to really change the litter box, or you need help with the cost of the food for your uh, pet, um, Cat Secure does assist with that. And we also have uh, coping circles, which are smaller groups in which um, they're educational and support in nature, and um, often led by an oncology social worker, and allow you to talk about just coping with different issues that you might be confronting. So that is a thumbnail sketch of all of the different services we offer. And we also offer case management. So what is case management? So if you have an issue, a problem that the state cancer care doesn't actually have um, someone to address, um, let's say it has to do with food insecurity, just not having enough funds for your own food, or um, concerns about paying your rent or mortgage or housing issues or all issues like that, our case management staff will meet with you virtually and then we'll take you to a resource and stay with you virtually until that, until your need is met. And often for issues around food issues, there are many different places, sometimes in your hometown, in your region, and nationally that you can access to get help with food or, or again, with housing and those kinds of concerns as well, and many other concerns that are, occur. So with that being said, um, I'm going to ask you all just a few questions before we go right into the Q&A. So again, I'm going to ask you five questions. It'll take about two minutes, and then we'll go right into the Q&A. And so, um, and this is for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the question, and you'll be able to rate your answer as well. So again, um, the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of clinical trials why they are important, and how to access information about clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the types of clinical trials and what happens in a clinical trial. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the meaning of informed consent and the benefits and risks of participating in a clinical trial in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of clinical trials how and where clinical trials are conducted and how to participate in clinical trials. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the specific questions to ask my healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19 experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in these, in these, in these polling questions. Uh, we really appreciate your uh, taking the time to respond to these questions. It helps us as we plan programs in 2022 to be sure that our programs most meet your needs. So your responses are very, very helpful to us. And now, um, and now uh, we have time for the Q&A. So um, I'm going to ask the die to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the card then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a number of questions online, so I'm just going to um, take some of those questions. Um, um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Wong this question. Do, um, do clinical trials and research studies go through a screening process? Yes, great question. Uh, absolutely. So not all clinical trials that are presented as a concept make it to the point where they are um, um, referred to patients. Um, internally, we have multiple checks and balances built in. Um, many ideas come into us, and these are first presented in front of faculty, uh, many of whom are, the, are experts in their field. Uh, if this is deemed to be a viable uh, clinical trial, viable meaning something that is scientifically valid, me makes sense to do, and and would uh, benefit patients, then it goes into what's called a regulatory process. There's a set series of things that have to happen before they end up with patients. First of all is a, a feasibility review, so is this a trial that we can do, uh, right? Never want to spend all the time and energy to to open something which uh, nobody wants or you don't have that patient population or it's not in our field. Number two is it goes under a vigorous scientific review. These are uh, a review in which the science and the uh, supporting data to undertake the trial is, is reviewed in a impartial and scientific manner. So the, the, the committees are usually populated by people who are experts in this area, including basic scientists and statisticians, and, and, and really it's a science review. Uh, after the first two processes, it oftentimes goes into what's called a, uh, a ethics review or an IRB. And the IRB is actually uh, charged with looking at this uh, in a way uh, to, from a patient perspective, uh, given that the scientific review is already been done. And these uh, committees are often staffed uh, not just by physicians, but by ancillary staff, by, by nurses, also uh, members of the community, uh, members of advocacy groups, to make sure that this is something which is uh, not just uh, uh, what we can do, but uh, what's something that uh, we should do and do well. And then after that's done, then uh, it then goes through another process in which the, the, the team members involved in that then uh, go through and huddle up around the, uh, the clinical trial protocol to make sure that all parts of it uh, are within our capabilities. And if not, we will, we will sort of staff up to it or find, uh, technically come up to, to speed on it. Uh, remember, some of these are brand new drugs and brand new approaches, and these approaches can be uh, uh, surgical as well. So as you can see, uh, radiation oncology or technical things. So as you can see, uh, we have to be uh, technically up to speed on it as well. And then and only then is it then opened up to, uh, uh, to patients. Uh, uh, simultaneously, these are then accessioned onto uh, clinical trial websites, and uh, Dr. Fleischer mentioned clinicaltrial.gov, G-O-V. That's, uh, that's a governmental site. It is not a site uh, that is commercial whatsoever. It is something that's uh, funded and paid for by our tax dollars. And we, as part of an NCIA-designated cancer center, are obligated to accession all our trials onto clinicaltrial.gov. And that's one, one place to look. Also, in our own internal websites, if you click on MD Anderson, you can go through to, to the specific disease site and look at the trials that are offered. Um, and, of, and oftentimes, the best thing that, that, uh, that you can do is actually, uh, uh, you know, speak to someone uh, if you're interested, and there are contact informations, you know, uh, uh, listed in many of the, the resources I've actually talked to you about. So uh, I've burnt a lot of time to talk about it, but the reality is I want to impart upon the people listening in at the, the, to get to the part where you, the patient, are looking at getting onto a trial. There's been so much that's gone on behind the scenes to get it to that very point. And even after you've come on, there are set reviews for, uh, there are these things called data safety monitoring boards, independent boards uh, paid for by 
by a fund which is independent of the individual sponsor, so these are not paid by one company, for, for example, they are charged with looking at both uh, the safety and efficacy of clinical trials as they are running in real time. And these are set at specific intervals linked to uh, timed events like X number of patients on the trial. And you, you can look for good things and, uh, and for bad things, the bad things being uh, ex, uh, toxicities and side effects. The good things are if the drug really works and there are situations in which a trial is actually stopped because the testing, the test compound or the new drug works so well that became, uh, that became uh, uh, a fair complete that we should just, just stop the trial and use it. Or sometimes, uh, in the same time, just fertility analysis in which we look and say, hey, look, this thing, we expect X number of patients to have had a benefit from it, and that's not happened. And statistically, it's not going to get there, so we're going to stop the trial for futility. So before the trial comes to you as a patient, and even after you sign on to a trial, are multiple reviews to assure safety and efficacy. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great question, but a wonderful answer. Very, very um, specific, and I think is something that people often wonder about. So I think this is very, very helpful. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Fleischman: How do you go about participating in clinical trials related to COVID-19? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 if anybody, if any of the cancer centers that are uh, treating your cancer are also doing trials on COVID-19, those would be included in the lists that we spoke about, both uh, the, the ones online and the ones that your providers know about. For pure COVID-19 um, uh, tests when cancer is not involved, I would, I believe they're also listed at clinicaltrials.gov, which is not purely cancer. It's not only the National Cancer Institute, but it's for all different diseases. Or I would ask your infectious disease specialist, and they may know of infectious disease-specific um, websites or uh, places to find about, a, about where, where and what clinical trials are available. Excellent. Thank you. Um, So um, for Dr. Wong, when should I consider a clinical trial? Um, so clinical trials come to the forefront at different times in the treatment of a person, right? And so, for example, uh, uh, the obvious one is during treatment for your uh, cancer, um, uh, these uh, there, there may arise opportunities to go on trials, and usually they may be trials related to like we talked about before, comparing two uh, uh, sort of the standard of care to a, a new approach or a new drug that's like a phase three trial. Um, oftentimes, we will always make sure we treat patients according to what we know works. So there, we, we call these things standard of care. And, and oncologists have little pathways and little algorithms, which are little uh, 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 sort of uh, decision-making documents that are distilled information about all the information about that particular cancer, and so we follow the pathway. And we get to a point where you know, we've exhausted or somehow the disease is not responding to the standard of care, then that's a, always a great opportunity to, to ask about it to participate in a trial. Uh, this is a, a situation in which the details really matter. So a conversation with their healthcare team, uh, and you can just ask exactly the question you've asked here. Is, is there an opportunity for a clinical trial in what's happening here, or should I be in a clinical trial here? Remember, not all clinical trials are therapeutic, so we have psychosocial clinical trials in which we are uh, doing surveys and questionnaires and intervening in a way to help it with uh, uh, psychosocial issues, so those are, uh, those are psychosocial things. We have dietary trials. We have trials to look at survivorship and people who are cured from cancer and uh, we're studying uh, any sort of lingering lasting side effects, good or bad, so not all side effects are, are bad, some of them are good, and so that's another opportunity. So the details really matter, and, and uh, I would ask my healthcare team specifically that question, and uh, you can ask it more than once, because remember one of the things that is important in clinical trials is they open and close. If we open a trial and it looks like it's, 
it's promising, then it may, it, it may accrue to its endpoint and then close. And you already heard from what I said about data safety monitoring, it may open and close for other reasons. So uh, a trial that, uh, that's, that may not have been open when you asked last time may be open this time. So always be proactive and remember what I said in my own part of the talk, remember who the boss is, that's you. And so be proactive. Thank you so much, thank you. Um, and uh, for Dr. Fleischman, is long-term follow-up care part of the study? What would it involve? Uh, follow-up is built into every study. Some of it may be shorter, some of it may be longer, but you will be told about that before you enter the trial. That would be part of the consent process. Um, some of the follow-up, if it's just part of the routine care you get from your cancer treatment team, may be done by your, uh, as part of your regular care. It really depends. But you would be told in advance exactly what the follow-up is. But keep in mind that um, once you're treated at an accredited center, the cancer center itself is um, obligated to report follow-up of uh, what your oncology team or even your primary care doctor finds um, over a number of years. And the number of years depends upon the, the type of cancer and um, how much the, each state also re requires reporting about um, some certain details after cancer because the states are following to see if uh, how their patients are doing who have been diagnosed and treated with cancer. And there is a governmental, uh, 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 a combination of a number of different states that actually report nationally and locally. So there are a lot of people reporting follow-up, but some of that's done by the study team, if that's not your primary oncology team, and some of it may be done by other providers. Thank Dr. Messer, can I just add something here? Yes. Oh, yes, please. Yes. Uh, so Dr. Fleischman very accurately puts out the entire clinical trial structure. There are also survivorship clinics within the cancer centers uh, in long-term survivors, uh, cured patients, as we'd like to say, where the focus is on, uh, is on health and not disease, because uh, we have passed that part of their treatment paradigm. So, uh, and there are clinical trials in that context as well. Uh, uh, which uh, go as part of the survivorship follow-up. Excellent. And a comment for you, Dr. Wong. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Wong, for explaining the role of patient advocates on the IRB oncology team. I am a cancer survivor advocate and serve on an IRB committee and see my role is to ensure informed consent has been properly done and patient understands the risks. Do you want to comment on that in some way in terms of I yeah, say bravo, yeah, I say <laughs> bravo, and thank you very much. Uh, we, uh, we listen very carefully to advocates, and, and I want to point out to, to you specifically and to all the people in the line that, that you are part of, uh, of what we do. We understand that everything we do is to serve that patient, and having an input is so important. So uh, uh, be assured that your voice is heard. Uh, many of our cancer center renewals in which we actually renew our certification as an NCI identity cancer center uh, will look at this metric. Right? Do you have input from, uh, from patients? Do you have input from advocacy groups? So, so important. And for those who are listening and, uh, and, and have the opportunity to get involved, I say please do so. Uh, we value your input. Excellent. Um, and then um, um, for Dr. Fleischman, um, uh, a question about um, the stages of clinical trials. Um, what is meant by phases in clinical trials? Phase one, phase two, phase three? Could you say something about that? Sure. So in, in general, uh, phase one trial, uh, the, uh, the sponsor of the trial is looking for uh, to show how safe the drug is. Um, animal tests are done, uh, lots of uh, uh, predictive tests are done to make sure that something that's being offered in a trial just isn't dangerous. But to see how safe it is, um, that's often part of the phase one. In um, phase two, often it's looking for the right schedule or the right dosage 
um, the details about if it's a drug, how often it's given, at what dose, what follow-up has to be done. And again, not just picking something that has no track record, but uh, building on lots of um, laboratory science, uh, uh, things that are done on, on some other animals, and then um, uh, transitioned over to humans. So it's not like somebody doesn't know anything about a drug and they're just trying it. I don't know of any institutional review board anywhere that would um, be comfortable letting something like that in. And frankly, the system wouldn't even let that get through the door. Uh, then uh, phase three would be comparing that, whatever was found in phase two, the right drug, the right dose at the right time, or the right device used in the right way for the right number of treatments, um, comparing that to the best treatment for your cancer at, that's available at that time and comparing the two. So, um, the uh, again, the this information that uh, that uh, many patients will tell us about not being a guinea pig is really a misunderstanding of the amount of preparation that goes into even phase one trials. No one gets anything that's clearly toxic. No one. I've never heard of that in my whole career. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, this will be our last question for Dr. Wong. Um, so this is a question, another question from a different patient advocate. Um, is a conflict of interest between doctors sponsoring a trial and their patient. How does the panel suggest um, protection of patients' interest from this conflict? Fantastic question, and that's something that we're very careful about. So for all of us who are uh, investigators in a clinical trial, we actually have to disclose conflicts. This is a, uh, a, a document which is um, a part uh, of the uh, process of opening a clinical trial. Uh, we go through and make sure that uh, any sort of conflict is, is declared and understood. Uh, remember that because uh, many of us uh, are knowledge leaders in this area, we actually oftentimes will participate in the construction of a trial, right? The drug, the schedule, uh, which patients, and so on and so forth. So many of us will have a role in, its, in, in, in putting it together, and that's also declared. Uh, any financial uh, uh, sort of uh, ties that are, are present between investigator and the sponsor, including the, uh, in the investigator's family, is also disclosed. So these are, are pretty much part of the, the, what we call the sunshine part of it, where we were just fully disclosed. When we give presentations related to uh, the clinical trial hour, the second slide after the title and the name of the presenter is the disclosure slide for all to see what's, uh, what's uh, uh, exactly happening with this situation. So, uh, so these things are overtly and uh, publicly declared. Dr. Messner, I, I want to say one thing that you, to, to lead on, uh, to, to add on to what you said earlier on about uh, you know, uh, getting help with uh, socioeconomic issues. Uh, some of the clinical trials, not all, uh, have reimbursement schemes built in for travel, for people coming in from far, and so on and so forth. Not all of them have that, uh, but, it's, but, if it's a, but it's something to, of course, uh, uh, mention and ask about if this is important to, to you, the patient. So I want to make sure that got out there, uh, that there is help built into many of these trials, understanding how hard it is to get back and forth. Oh, that's so important. and. Um um, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank our participants. Although we've done a, a program like this before, I would say this one has been far um, out. Uh, it really stands out from all that we've done before, both in terms of the questions asked and our speakers, just the, the, the information that you all were able to um, get today from your questions. And I also want to remind everybody that today's program is recorded, which means that you'll be able to listen to the program um, as a podcast um, within probably 24 hours um, if you want to share it with somebody else. Um, but also we do, I just want to acknowledge that there are many more questions in queue. So I do want to first address that right up front. Now we could stay on this call for another hour, but we did say this would be an hour program. So there are many more questions that we didn't get to answer. So I want to um, address this whole issue of the questions. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that you're in queue wanting to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, 
or another question, we ask you to take all that information back to your treating healthcare team. You know, they actually know you the best. They have their medical records in front of them. And so please see your this program today, those who asked a question as a role play for asking questions of your healthcare team. And as you really got a sense of from our speakers today, all of your questions are remarkably wonderful. And to some extent, they require an answer. And sometimes you have to ask the question more than once. Um, and I think um, if you're asking it on telehealth, telemedicine, you may want to have another set of ears there. That's often very helpful. Or even um, if you're able to bring um, someone with you when you see your oncologist and ask a question, always good to have an extra set of ears there listening to the answer because we often hear different things. Um, also, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with cancer or in coping with any of the issues that we brought up today. You're now part of a community of support and your healthcare team consists of many people. It consists of your oncologist, your um, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, um, your patient navigator, financial navigator. There are a lot of people on that team. So if you bring a question up to your doctor, they will be able to then route it over to different people on your team. And you're also going to be getting from us at SurveyMonkey in which we will be giving you other resources that you can contact for help and information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.